0: Um, this summer we had a, um, uh, discussion group on Wednesday nights, right? We met in our apartment and we went, uh uh-oh, not, I don't know what's going on. Let me grab this one. Um, we had a discussion group in our apartment and we were basically discussing deconstructing your faith, It's a big, it's a hot topic these days. Um, Basically, the book was talking about how um, people who at one time claimed to be Christians, right, um, are walking away from their faith. And for a lot of different reasons, they they would put forward. Um, Our culture is changing a lot. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, debate, there's a lot of pressures, um, politics has gotten more and more contentious, um, and other issues have arisen, and for some, one reason or another, people are saying, you know what, I, I don't think that I believe that anymore. I don't think that I'm a Christian. I don't think I want to hold on to those beliefs anymore. And so we had the opportunity to talk through that and discuss What are these issues? In the different chapters of the books, the book talked about everything from gender to social justice to sexuality to politics to the internet, all those things. And interestingly enough, although chapter after chapter we read about people claiming that they didn't want anything to do with Christianity because of these issues, or even maybe the way the church has made certain stances or said certain things. But the one overriding issue all the way through that book and even to the very end that we kept coming back to was it really didn't have anything to do with Jesus. And it's all about Jesus, right? These other issues have effect But we as the church should be pointing people to Jesus, right? Not to our own opinions, not to our own uh, issues, but to Christ. I have conversations with all the people, uh, all the time with people uh, who have all kinds of opinions about Christians and Christianity. But they really don't know very much about Jesus. And so the best way I believe that we can. Not just prevent this, but really what we should be about as the church and as Christians. And that is putting the spotlight where it belongs, and that is on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's all about him. So, this morning, that's exactly what I want to do in John chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to read verse 1 through 11 and talk about that a little bit as we focus on Jesus this morning. It begins in verse 1, says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord, speak to our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, give us understanding that we can't grasp on our own. We know that this is the word of life. Lord Jesus, we know that your words are the words of life. And so we look to you this morning for answers. We look to you for healing. We look to you for strength. God, speak to us and may we be doers and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning is More About Jesus. Make sure I put it up there right because I changed it like four or five times. Because, see, this story, and the, and the temptation is, as I look at some of these passages of Scripture and read these stories, is to make it about a lot of other things. This woman, these accusers, right? Now, the culture, society, whatever was going on. But this account is recorded here in Scripture for you and I to see Jesus more clearly. And so for the next few moments as we focus on Jesus, my prayer is that we will all learn something about Jesus and in turn, we will learn from Christ. And the first thing is this that we see here. Jesus is humble. We know that. Philippians 2.8 tells us, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. We know that over and over again, we see that Jesus humbles himself. And we see that humility here in this encounter with these men and with this woman. In verse 6, it says, This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. (laughs) It seems like an odd response, right? Here come these guys. They come. They got a plan, right? They got a test. They got a trap. They come and bring her with them. What is Jesus doing? This is a big moment for him. This is a big moment in his ministry and in his mission. This is a big question they've asked him. We'll see why in a second. But Jesus demonstrates here humility. Man, aren't you glad that that's the way Jesus deals with us, right? Gently, patiently. He could have just jumped on these guys, right? He could have just jumped on this woman. But he chooses a different approach He is dealing with the heart. He comes first of all for our hearts, whispering to you, whispering to me, revealing things, bringing conviction by his spirit, revealing things to us about ourselves because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And so he's teaching, he's moving in our hearts, he's loving. But I want you to see about two things about this humility that we see in Jesus this morning. And it might surprise you. First is confidence. Jesus is supremely confident, right? Often we think of humility as weakness, but the humility of Christ is just the opposite. We see this tremendous confidence in him, right? Jesus was on a mission. He knew who he was. He knew what his purpose was. He was teaching. He had faced a lot of opportunities, listen, to get sidetracked, right? His disciples wanted him to put up a fight with Rome, to go stand on the steps of City Hall and give a speech, right, at different times. Peter wanted him to fight. But Jesus was confident in who he was and his relationship to the Father and his mission. And that's what he was on, and this didn't change any of that. So he was confident. These men came with a trap, right? And these Pharisees, these religious leaders, over and over again came to Jesus trying to trap him, trying to test him. They wanted mainly to publicly shame him and trap him in front of the people, right? None of them had the guts to come to him, except Nicodemus, come to him and challenge him privately, right? They were, they were working the crowd. See, the Pharisees hated all this talk about love and compassion and loving your enemy and eating with sinful people and going to the wrong places where people didn't believe and didn't, weren't the right religion, weren't, weren't the right race, they hated that. They wanted to, to trap him. And it was actually a pretty good plan. They came to him with a legitimate portion of the Mosaic law. And they were going to force him to either say, they were going to force him to either say, oh, that doesn't matter. That's not really what the law meant. And therefore betray the law of Moses, which he knew would really get him in trouble with all the people, right? Right? And they would say, this is a godly man? This is who you say is your Messiah? But remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. Or, that was one choice, or they were going to force his hand and make him betray his message of love, right, and understanding and compassion. Yes, come to me, all who are heavy laden and weary, and I will condemn you to death. Right? They were trying to get him in a trap. So this is a big moment. But Jesus' response says he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What was he doing? Now there's been debate over this. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us what he wrote in the ground, but some some believe he could have been writing the name of these accusers, each one, showing them that he knew them. But I believe we really miss the point if we focus too long on that. The point is he was deliberate. He was not rattled. He had an answer. He knew what they were thinking before they said a word. But he had this calm confidence. I remember when I was a teenager going into college, I had a muscle car. It was a Mustang. It was awesome. It was fast. And I would race it every now and then. I don't condone that. (laughs) Don't condone that. But one of the best feelings was when I would drive up to a red light and sit there, and that thing was idling, and somebody would pull up next to me like in a Grand National or an IROC-Z or whatever they were back in the day, um, and they would be like, they wanted to race, you know. But I knew I was the best. I knew my car was the fastest. So I would just look at them, and they'd be, and they'd take off, and I'd just like, I didn't have to race. I was confident. I knew what I had. See, confidence is what Jesus was exuding here. He didn't lose his cool. And they keep asking him. He, reaches, he bends down and starts to write. They keep asking him. So he speaks, right? He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And again, some people say now he's, he, maybe he's writing out the sins of these accusers. But either way, Jesus' response was not, when he said that, his response was not saying, hey guys, lighten up. Everybody has sin. You have sin. You've messed up. She's messed up. It's no big deal. He's not saying righteousness and the law doesn't matter. Actually, he's quoting the law back to them. Jesus is actually saying, listen, if you're going to fulfill the law, you have to do it to the T, right? You have to do it correctly. And so like most things, men and religion has taken what God has given us and twisted it. We've missed the point, turned it into something that serves us rather than God. And there were two issues here. First of all, Mosaic law, the requirements for the rules of evidence in Mosaic law were tremendous, much greater than they are even in our society today. To accuse someone of adultery, for instance, you must have seen the act take place. You must have actually seen it. Not like you, know, you bring up witnesses or you look at evidence. No, you have to have seen it with your own eyes. And so that means, of course, if they saw this act take place, there would have been two people on the chopping block, Right? She wasn't committing adultery by herself. The man and woman are to be prosecuted together, but here they just had this woman. So Jesus challenges them. Either they didn't see the actual act or they're guilty of partiality, which is also betraying the law, which is also very common at this time because of the inequality between men and women and all the cultural issues that we have today that we've always had, that we will always have until Jesus is king over all of our lives. But Jesus turns us around on them. And also, he's letting them know that, yes, he knows the law, and he knows whether or not they're handling it correctly. The law states in Deuteronomy 13 that if you're going to be a witness, you're also part of the prosecution, And if you're going to be part of the prosecution and the executioner of justice, then you cannot be guilty of the same law that you're accusing you accused of breaking. So these men came using the law of Moses for their own purposes to trap Jesus, to embarrass this woman. But what they didn't anticipate was that not only was Jesus an expert of the law, to put it lightly, but he was the giver of it. He knows the heart of a holy God who was demonstrating his holiness and to reveal to man that none of us are without guilt. And the result of that was to call us to each come with humble hearts for our own sin. That was the purpose of the law, to reveal there's a separation between a holy God and me and to come and seek restoration in him alone. Jesus was confident and understood that that's the very reason he had come. So Jesus was humble. We see his humility because, first of all, he's confident, but also he demonstrated gentleness. The combination of confidence and gentleness. Jesus could have crushed these men, right? But he didn't. He didn't blow up and get ready to throw hands he didn't do any of those things. It's crazy. Last week, I know, I, I get off on these sometimes. Um, last week, two times. It's crazy. I saw guys right next to me just out of nowhere, just threw up hands and started to fight. Welcome to New York City. Um, Jesus was not on edge, though, like many of us are around the city, right? He was gentle. And this was a critical moment, like I said, for him. And yet he was gentle. He was unshaken. He was not concerned about defending himself. He was primarily concerned that they would know the truth, that he is the savior of all mankind for this woman, for them, for you, and for me. So he calmly bent over and began to doodle in the dirt. And as they talked, calm and strong, not rattled, not angry, if it were my response, it would have been, oh, yeah? Yeah. Remember we talked about joy last week? Remember that word joy that we talked about in John, that word, the New Testament word, which means calm delight. Joy comes from that confidence that we have, not in ourselves, but in Christ. We have that calm delight. It's a confidence. So he treated this man, these men actually with gentleness. He also treated this woman with gentleness. Yes, she had sinned. We see evidence of that here. And yes, God hates sin. People often say, "You know what? When Christians say God hates sin but loves the sinner, that it's a cop out or they just they don't see how that can be." Listen, Jesus demonstrated that over and over again, demonstrated that to this woman. He loved her, but he addresses her sin. He treated this woman the opposite of how the Pharisees treated her, right? They marched her out in front of everyone, more concerned with making their point, more concerned with protecting their power. And this woman actually was beside the point. So Jesus did this over and over, spoke gently, gently restoring. Remember the prostitute who washed his feet? Remember, he was gentle. Peter on the water, when he lost faith, began to sink, gentle. Even Judas told him at the Lord's Supper, Do what you have to do. It's gentle. So that's what we learn about Jesus here. And what do we learn from him here? The question for you and I this morning is does, Does my life demonstrate the humility of Christ? If he is my Lord, if I am his, do people see that in me, that part of him? It's not a pseudo-humility, not, oh, I'm not worthy and don't look anyone in the eye or any of that kind of stuff. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? It's actually confidence. It's confidence not in me but in Jesus, in his promises for abundant life, help and grace in every circumstance, his presence by his spirit, his promise that I can never be separated from his love. For now and for eternity, just like Galatians 5 tells us, and the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the presence of God in my life love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control, patience. See, confidence in Christ is demonstrated in gentleness. See, that's not something we get from the world or from my flesh, it's the opposite. The world produces loud anger, bitterness today. The opposite of Christ-like humility. It's self-centeredness, self-righteousness. and Christian, we allow ourselves to get right in the melee. But see, when I'm in Christ, when when my confidence is in Jesus, I no longer have to defend myself or prove myself. I don't have to prove my worth. I don't have to... Be on a constant search for my identity. I know who I am and I know whose I am. My parents used to say they went and left left the house. Remember who you are and whose you are? Most of us are either a conflict avoider or a conflict enjoyer. Either way, it's a sign that I am not free from self because I'm trying to protect myself. I'm trying to promote myself, right? Defend myself. How does this make me look or feel? Every encounter, every conversation, what did they mean by that? What are they trying to say? How did I look? How did I come off? It's a prison. Tim Keller says, we watch ourselves, watch ourselves. So obsessed with self. And so I'm defensive. And that makes me harsh and insecure at times as well. Jesus didn't fall into that trap. Jesus didn't demonstrate that to us. This is how the world's gotten in the condition that we've gotten in, right? Defending our ground. And listen, Christians in the church, unfortunately, have allowed ourselves to be drugged right into it. It didn't take much convincing. First Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Listen, my confidence is in Christ and in God's plan for me and for my life. We come to salvation through humbling ourselves. But listen, Christian, it is a daily journey, humbling myself before God. Jesus demonstrated over and over, from coming to earth, being born in a stable, the way he treated people, the way he responded to these traps and tests and challenges, all the way to the cross. And he's called us to that kind of humility because That is what he produces in me. And for us to live with that kind of humble heart is to find our confidence in him. So we see Jesus is humble, but also we can see here that Jesus is gracious. Praise God. He does not condemn. Verse 11, and Jesus said down at the bottom there, neither do I condemn you. See, Jesus is saying... I do not condemn you because I will be condemned for you. Jesus was headed to the cross. That's where condemnation for sin will be reckoned with. And that's the good news. Listen, every other worldview and religion says you are either guilty and condemned, so work on it. Prove yourself. Get better. Or you're not guilty and not condemned. Don't worry about it. You're good. I'm good. We're all good. What Christianity says is, I am guilty and I am not condemned <clears throat> in Christ. Grace. Receiving what I do not deserve. Freedom from condemnation. Jesus was giving this woman what she did not necessarily deserve, right? Regardless of these accusers, Jesus knew her. He knew her past, and he said, go. Stop sinning. So it's not that she wasn't guilty of adultery. That wasn't the point Jesus was making with these religious leaders. He was showing them, first of all, they too are sinners. But he had come to fulfill the law. He had come to fulfill righteousness. Why were these women condemning this? I mean, why were these men condemning this woman? Self-righteousness, right? Self-righteousness. They were losing their control and their power. They wanted to hold on to that. But Jesus had a different purpose. John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus came. There's more to that we'll get to in a second. But when the world looks at Jesus, when the world looks at you and me, they should not see condemnation but grace. It's easy to look at these these accusers here with disdain, right? But if we're honest, we do the same thing. How do you treat people that think differently than you, believe differently than you? Whether it's politics or religion or social issues. What about those who just don't care for you? I can't dig into your heart, but I, I know mine, and I believe that if we're all to be honest and peel back layer after layer, we'd find that some of our deepest motivations in our conversations online and with our family or coworkers, even strangers, is grounded in protecting myself, not demonstrating grace. And you may say, well, I'm allowed to make my points too, right? I have, I have opinions, Yes, but remember this. Jesus had the opportunity to rail on many things in this interaction here, right? But he didn't. He made his point with grace and humility. So just for a moment, stop thinking about how this applies to someone else. Stop thinking, yeah, that person, or oh, I wish they were here, or I hope they hear this, or, or those people act like this, or the, they say that. They this No, Christ is speaking to me. This morning to you, are you a gracious person? Do you live out grace in your life? That's not mystical. Because that's who Jesus is. And if he's the Lord of my life, that'll be evident in my life. And listen, I'll speak for the church just for a moment since I am part of it. Much like these men, we've allowed ourselves To lose the gospel on a hill of so many other issues. Giving our allegiance to so many other things. Instead of reacting to what others think or the direction we think the country is going or how I'm losing my rights or any of that. Because that that creates a situation where we allow those things to make the very people Christ has called us to love our enemies because we choose to protect and promote self as an institution or even as myself personally. Self-righteousness that these men came with, self-righteousness has an effect. It condemns. You can see it in religion. We take on the the role of the Holy Spirit, right? Right? You can see it in society. We have this herd mentality. Whatever's popular at the time, cancer, cancel culture, if you say or do the wrong thing, you're out. Our flesh, every one of us, we all have a high horse or a soapbox. If I got you talking about this morning, you'd go on and on about. See, these, Jesus didn't treat these men like they were bigoted male chauvinist hypocrites. He didn't treat this woman as if she was morally beneath him. Even though they all were. Why not? John 3, 17 goes on to say, for God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came to save. That brings me to the final point. Jesus is redeemer. He's humble. He's gracious. And He is the Redeemer in verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. In these last words to the woman, Jesus does does two things. He frees her from condemnation, right? And He calls her to put her faith in Him. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ Christ, Redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, remember I said before that uh, what Jesus did for her is what He has done for all of us. He does not condemn her, but he has he is headed to be condemned for her and for you and for me. Redeemer to find one who rescues, delivers, or saves. This is why Jesus came. listen. Despite popular belief, Jesus did not come primarily to be a social worker. His purpose was not simply to heal the sick and teach us to be kind to one another. Although he did those things, Jesus' mission and purpose was to come to rescue to deliver this woman from her sin, to provide redemption for these men, these accusers, the people watching, and for you and for me this morning. To save us from the power and effect of our brokenness and our rebellion, our sin. See, it's important to understand that Jesus did not ignore this woman's sin in verse 11, right? We love this story, and sometimes we gloss over this last part, this last line by Jesus. But the issue here, the reason for her condition and brokenness is sin. The issue with those accusers was sin. Not just inappropriateness or bad manners. sin. See, when we get to this part, we start to squirm in our seats a little bit. And we're like, ah, come on, this is such a nice little story. Don't ruin it. So, why did Jesus go there? He had diffused the situation, right? The men had left. He, he, he stopped the attack. He, he got through this test, this trap. Why did, he, why did he go there to her sin? Because ultimately it was her sin that was the cause of her brokenness. And this is why Jesus came to redeem us from our sin. And that's good news. Why did Jesus? come to deal with our sin. First of all, sin destroys. That's what Scripture tells us. James 1.15, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Listen, sin destroys. It hurts you. It hurts me. It hurts the world. People hate it when we use that word, right, sin? But when we understand it as hatred, bigotry, injustice, murder, then okay, I can accept that. What's the difference? The difference is we want to define it. We want to be in control of it. So when you say sin, that's God's definition. I want to be able to just like, let's just figure this out on our own. And that's why we're in the condition we're in. Is when we make the rules, we slowly adjust them to fit ourselves, right? But sin, as God determines it, destroys, we can ignore it if we want, we can call it something else if we want, try to redefine it but that's why we see it destroying the world. Because we're all deciding differently what is acceptable, what is righteous, what is evil, and who is evil. And we end up just destroying one another. God has made it clear. And first and foremost, we talk about this all the time. Romans 1, Romans 2 talks about when we refuse to acknowledge God as God, that's when it all starts. That's what we've done from the very beginning. And then, yes, there's lists and lists of of things that are... Are offensive to God and things that are hurtful to us but really what Jesus came to save us from was from ourselves trying to be God for ourselves Jesus wouldn't have done this woman any favors not to address her sin she would have found herself in the same situation eventually because sin destroys it's just like the law of gravity but secondly it breaks our relationship with God it offends God Isaiah 59, 2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. It breaks our relationship with a holy God. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died and rose. Because God knew that left in our condition, broken, fallen, sinful, it would be impossible to walk with and have a relationship with a holy, righteous God. And so in his love for you and me, for this woman, for these men, he demonstrated that love. He came. Jesus came, fulfilling the justice requirement for sin. I love the way the Apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin. See, he didn't condemn the woman. He hasn't condemned you and I. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Christ humbled himself. He took on flesh. He took on our burdens and pains. He showed the grace of God and went to the cross to give you and I what we could not get on our own. Redemption. Rescue. Deliverance. Relationship with God. And Jesus tells this woman, I'm not here to condemn you. I've I've come to take that, but I've come to save you. So stop destroying yourself. Here's the hard part for some. It's by faith. That's what it costs you. faith. You can't get yourself right. She couldn't get herself good enough. You see how Jesus called this woman to faith? See, Jesus had done all these things, talked to these men, talked to her, wrote in the ground all those things. But now he's calling her to put her faith in him, to trust him. He says, go and stop sinning. He's asking her to trust his way, trust his word, trust his command. She could have said, yeah, no thanks. Thanks for doing that, but you know I'll do what I want. Maybe she did, but she had a choice as she walked away from that place that day to trust Jesus or to trust herself. And that's what Christ is calling you and I to do today. Stop doing it our way put our faith in Him. Christian, your sin has removed your sin. Um, Christ has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. That is finished. Jesus paid for it on the cross. However, Jesus' words to us are the same as, it, as they are to this woman. Stop! Stop sinning! Stop rebelling. Stop trusting in yourself. Life was meant to be so much more than what you are choosing by your habitual sin to live. You know, when Jesus made that statement in John 10.10, he said, you know, I've come that they may have life and have it to the fullest, the abundant life. What he's actually describing is the opposite of a life lived in sin. Jesus came to free us from the penalty of it and the bondage of it. But it's interesting here when we talk about faith. In verse 11, Jesus says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. See, the temptation is to to think I need to get myself together. I need to straighten my life out before I can come uh, to Christ. But the correct order is to receive the redemption by faith. 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 In Christ, freedom from condemnation. And then dealing with conquering and, dis- and, and uh, overcoming destructive habits and the sin in my life. You're not going to get yourself good enough. It's a step of faith. It's saying, you know what? I can't do this, God. I trust in you. Christ Jesus, I trust in you. Take my life. Rework my life. Remake me. Make me new. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Listen, if you're waiting to clean up your life enough to come to Christ, or you're waiting for someone else to get their life good enough to come to Jesus, it's never going to happen. So we come to the end here. What does redemption look like? We don't hear the rest of this woman's story, right? But there is something interesting and a little bit later, Luke records the account of the sinful woman. You remember that? Jesus is at, I believe it's Simon's house, and he's eating there with religious leaders and all these things, and then a A sinful woman, she's described, comes in and she begins to wash Jesus' feet. Obviously, she had had some interaction with Jesus either before or even in that moment. I'm not saying this is her, but this is what redemption looks like. And she comes and she worships him and washes his feet. She's broken. And these religious leaders sit back and scoff. Why would you let her do that? Why would you... Let her touch you. And Jesus says to them, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus tells that woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Listen, redemption is within reach of every one of us here this morning. No matter your past, no matter your present No matter your failures, brokenness, or your experiences. And that redemption in Christ changes who I am. I go in peace. And so, what we learn from Jesus here is yeah, redemption. We all need a redeemer. So, Jesus, we see he's humble, confident, and gentle. And as his children, we should demonstrate that kind of humility in our own lives, right? Our own relationships. He's gracious. He does not condemn. He shows grace. You've been shown grace. Therefore, be a people of grace, not condemnation. And finally, he is the redeemer. He fulfilled all the requirements for you and I not to be condemned and to receive redemption, adoption as children's, children of God. If you put your faith in him as redeemer, you can go in peace. I'll close with this quote from Jesus and we'll pray. Matthew chapter 11, he says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your strength, your power. Lord, thank you that you are truth. And thank you, God, that you do not condemn, Lord Jesus. You came to save You came to save every one of us. And we, although maybe different circumstances from this woman, we all, her story is all of our story. Lord, we have sought to find hope and satisfaction and pleasure apart from you, God. We've rebelled. We've tried to be God ourselves. God, forgive us. May we we come to you as Lord this morning, relinquishing our white knuckle death grip on our lives. Release them to you because you care for us. You're gentle. You're gracious. You love us and call us to yourself for redemption. Thank you that you came as Redeemer. Thank you that you change us. Lord, may our lives demonstrate that. May the world around us see Jesus. May people not be walking away from Jesus and the message of Christ because of so many other things. But may we spotlight Christ in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we treat our neighbors, in the way that we treat one another, encourage one another, and love one another, Lord God. And may we be ready to give a reason for that in our lives.